Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you all. Um, if you have a Bible, please could you go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We'll get to verse 21 in just a moment. Now, if you've been following the news at all, you will be aware that we are in the throes of an energy crisis. And it's kind of gone bad and there's been some good news in terms of government help and, and so on and so forth. And I don't know if you've uh, been on news websites or you've got emails from your energy provider with creative solutions of what to do to help in this current situation, things you can try about how can serve, uh, you can serve energy and, and reduce your bills and all those things. Uh, we've had plenty of those come through to our home. But what it's reminded me of or highlighted, which I guess I was aware of, but I'm not sure I was aware of aware of, is our need for power to do things in our home, to heat our homes, to run the appliances and charge our devices, etc., etc. We need those things for our home, and we actually want them for everyone else. We want people to be warm. We want people to be able to cook their dinner and, and watch some telly for entertainment and all those things going on. That's what we want. We need the power to do that. And what we're going to be looking at today is the need for power to see the kingdom of God come. We're going to need the power for God's kingdom to break in. And we're going to look at the next section of Mark's Gospel that illustrates that. We've started a new series in Mark's Gospel. We've called it All About Jesus because we're going to be looking at him as the focus of the Gospel as we run through it. We began looking at the first verse, which was Mark's title, saying this is all about Jesus. And we've seen that God the Son... Jesus himself, the long-awaited Messiah, has come to earth. The way was prepared by John the Baptist and the Old Testament prophets before him. Jesus then comes onto the scene. He is filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to work out his ministry. He then goes into the desert. He does battle with God's enemy there. And then we see him getting on with his ministry. And it begins with a proclamation that the kingdom of God has come and people are to repent and believe the good news and follow. And then he starts by calling the first of his disciples. We later know them as the 12 disciples, but it's two sets of brothers come and they form the microcosm of the Jesus community that will one day become the church that we know today. And so that's what's happened. So Jesus is on the scene. He is God the Son. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Mark says he's the best news ever. He's the gospel, the good news. He's begun his ministry by proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the section we come to now in Mark is a demonstration of that kingdom. So what he's proclaimed, he now demonstrates in his actions. And so we're going to read a passage. Um, and I need some volunteers to help me with this because it's a long, long passage. And we, we generally read it together. But actually, it's a little bit long, and so making you all read it together might be a bit much. So I need some volunteers to help me who will have the mic and read it off the slides. I will start, and I need six people to help me. If you don't volunteer in the context of love, I will choose you. Okay? So can I have a first couple of volunteers, please? Put your hands up. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Dave, and thank you, Haley. Brilliant. We're just going to work it through. And Brani there, I'm going to start. And then we're going to, Charlotte is going to have to run around and try and to get everyone. And we've got a few more. Kathy's put a hand up as well. So can we put the first slide up, please, Sarah? I will read that one. And then it will jump straight to you, Haley. You ready? I'll give it. Well, when it gets to the end of the slide, that's the nod. Because oh, right, okay. then it'll go on to a new slide, all right? 
You got that? You didn't tell me that in advance. Don't let me down. We'll see how smooth this transition is. Okay, verse 21, if you want to follow along, it says this. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned amongst themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Sorry, things in the way. (laughs) And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. Last one. And said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Fantastic. Can we give those guys a clap? That's not easy. Thank you there for reading scripture to us. Okay, big idea of what we're going to look at today is the kingdom of God comes with life-changing power. The kingdom of God comes with life-changing power. So Jesus has proclaimed the kingdom. We saw that in the previous passage. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. We now see it being outworked. And this section of 
um, Mark's gospel from verses 21 to 38 is basically one day. It's a day in the life of Jesus. And when you actually look at what's going on, it's quite a busy life. And if you know a little bit about Mark's gospel, we've talked about it. There's a lot of immediately's in there where he's moving from one thing to the other thing to the next thing, which is a characteristic of his gospels. There's a succession of events, and we see the kingdom of God, which is where God is ruling and reigning, breaking in to the situation and changing people's lives. So what we're going to look at this morning is the kingdom of God brings healing, deliverance, and salvation, and we're going to see it's proclaimed by preaching, fueled by prayer, and motivated by compassion. This one, the kingdom of God comes with deliverance. Now, we have a specific incident, the first section there, verses 21 to 28. Jesus goes to Capernaum, where he was living at the time, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he's already called the disciples, the first four, to follow him. And he goes into the synagogue. The synagogue was a meeting house that was established in certain areas among the Jewish population. When there was 13 or more males present, they could establish a synagogue, which for our kind of modern equivalent would be like a church. And they would go. Um, hear teaching, and the teaching will be done by the kind of congregation. Someone in the congregation would come, and they would teach, and Jesus is there. His custom was to go to church. We find that in Luke 4 as well. Jesus was a churchgoer, and so he was there on the Sabbath in it. And we find confrontation. So Jesus proclaimed God's kingdom has come, and the immediate kickback is from God's enemy and his kingdom saying, no, we're not having that. So we have an unclean, a demonic spirit in an individual that comes into the meeting and is disrupting it. And we've already seen this already in Mark, where Jesus was sent out. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he goes out into the wilderness. And we have the temptations there. And Mark does it very briefly, but we look in the other Gospels. There's a longer, drawn-out thing there over the 40 days where the enemy comes to try and tempt him. And Jesus quotes Scripture to him from Deuteronomy and says, no, he won't do those things. And he ultimately prevails where, in the past, um, Adam and others have failed in temptation. And so we have this unclean spirit. Unclean just means polluted or contaminated in Jewish thought. It was just the realm of the ungodly and the demonic. So we have demonic unseen powers are at work and they are coming against Jesus. And the unseen, these powers recognize who Jesus is because they call Jesus the Holy One of God. And interestingly, in the Gospel of Mark so far, two people have recognized who Jesus is. One of them is God the Father at his baptism. He said, this is my son. The other one is a demonic spirit. Humans are nowhere in this. They have not cottoned on to who Jesus is. They're dull and they're a step behind. God knows who he is. First person of Trinity recognizes the second person of Trinity. You'd expect that. But actually the demonic realm, they recognize it. And there is a clash. But what happens? God prevails because Jesus just rebukes the spirit, tells him to come out, and there is a no-contest battle. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is ruling and reigning over that. And you knew that was going to happen anyway because of who he is. But even in the name, the title that the spirit gives Jesus, we see echoes of that. Because the Holy One of God is a title that's only used by one other person, about one other person in the Bible, Samson, who was one of the great judges. Go back there. And Samson was a mighty warrior victorious in battle. And so we have another clash of kingdoms here between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus, like Samson, completely victorious and, and uh, kind of um, destroys, defeats the enemy before him. But it's not just like a normal battle where you defeat the enemy. The enemy is usually dead and broken, and it's usually carnage everywhere. But here we actually have healing and restoration as well, because this person who'd been tormented 
by an unclean spirit. The spirit is gone, and they are now restored to the fellowship of God's people and free from that influence. And so we have that specific instance, but then we see it continue. Go to verses 34, go to verses 39. This just becomes part of Jesus' ministry as he goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance and belief in him. And as a part of that, he is constantly battling up against the works of the enemy and dealing with the influence of the demonic in people's lives. We read later... In the New Testament, 1 John 3, it says, The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so that's what he's doing as he goes about. Acts 10, 38, it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. We've seen that, anointed by the Spirit, his baptism with the Holy Spirit, and with power, and he went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Even in the demonic spirits, talking to Jesus. What do you say? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus doesn't, doesn't say Jesus' answer there, but we know the implied answer. What's the implied answer? Yep. Bukes him, gets him out. And so Jesus brings the kingdom, which brings deliverance from the influence and the power of the enemy. And just to put that in a context for us now, what that can look like, the reality is we have an enemy who is active in the world and he seeks to damage and destroy us in any way he can. And demonic influences can come into our lives, into people's lives in multiple different ways. It can come through repeated sin. We get caught up in a sin cycle and we get uh, under demonic influence as a result. It can come through trauma. It can come through uh, a constant abuse, verbal, sexual, physical. The involvement in the occult, witchcraft. It can go in just believing lies about yourself which can come through so many different ways and we just take them on and believe them, and the kingdom of God is come to set people free from those things. And I experienced that personally in my own life. Um, it wasn't that long ago that I actually found I was, um, I was believing a lie about myself, and that was uh, when I had kids, I've got two boys, that, that I would not be a good father. And basically the lie came along and says, you are not going to be a good dad to these boys, and I believed it. I believed it through my own insecurities, uh, my own weakness, and I just swallowed it. And as my boys were babies and I was kind of doing it, I had this thing, I'm not going to be a good father to these boys. I'm going to fail them. And it took the power of God to come and reveal that lie to me. And there was an incident when we were in a meeting, church meeting, and I kind of had revelation of that lie. I think, actually, no, that's not the way God's designed me. That's not the way he's built me. That's not what he's called me to do. He's called me to be a good father. He's a good father. I reflect him. Therefore, I can be a good father. And I got deliverance when I believed the truth and I repented of my sin and I said, no, I'm not going to believe that lie. And so as a result, I've been free from that and a good father ever since, which is fantastic. And so the, the power of God is, free, is here today to set people free from the influence of the power of the enemy. The second one is healing. But healing, we have a spe- another specific incident, begins at verse 31, which follows immediately on. So Jesus has gone to church, you know, as he does. Suddenly there's a demon-possessed man, deals with that. He then goes home for lunch, and it says he went to um, the house, and he's got with with Simon, Peter, forgive me if I get them wrong, because he becomes Peter, and Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. We're not exactly clear of what that it was, but what we, we know enough, she was clearly unwell. And he goes back home, and uh, James and John and Simon and Andrew are there, the guys he's called in the previous section. They're there. And Jesus has power over the demonic. 
The next thing he does, he goes home and you've got a very sick lady there. And what does Jesus do? Jesus heals her. It says he, he, he raises her up. She is well, and she is well enough then from an encounter with Jesus to be able to serve them. Now, the danger is in our modern mind, we can think, wait, well, all right, he healed her, now you've got to go and make the dinner, love. Do you know? <laughs> that, that, that's what Just, It's not quite that. Yes, she was healed, but the, the, the language of serving is the language that's used about angels serving before God, so it is a positive thing, and it's also a, G, a word Jesus uses about himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See that in Mark, Mark 10, 45. And so it's not a sign of inferiority. It's a result of an encounter with Jesus. You have an encounter with Jesus, she's healed. What's the response of anyone who's met Jesus and had their life transformed? They give their life to him and they serve him. That's just what she's doing. And so we have a specific account there of another transformed life. We have someone uh, who was suffering with the oppression of the demonic, dealt with, another lady who's sick, dealt with, and her response is to serve her Lord and Savior right there and then. And as we look on through the passage, you find this is a continued ministry again. Just it kind of, you have these catch-all terms in the gospel where it's like there's a specific moment, and then later it's like Jesus was just healing. People came. And they came, and there's a bit there at the end where it says at sunset they brought him. Why at sunset? Because the Sabbath was over, and they could travel. And so it's like, well, they're waiting. Sabbath over, Sabbath over. Sabbath, right, let's go. There's a healer over there. So they bring all their sick, and they're demon oppressed, and Jesus heals them. So it becomes part of his ministry. And you cannot go far in a gospel without find Jesus finding Jesus healing the sick in some form or other. So we find... Deliverance in the kingdom, we find salvation. And the third one, sorry, deliverance, healing, and the third one is salvation. So we go down to verse 40. Now what's happened is Jesus has moved on to the next towns. He says we're going to go to other towns. There with um, a leper, a little bit about leprosy. Leprosy was the worst thing that you could have at the time. It was a widespread disease and it was a subject that was filled with superstition and fear. It is covered extensively in our Old Testament. We did the book of Leviticus at the beginning of the year, chapters 13 and 14, cover skin diseases and the word leprosy covers a wide range. I read in one of the commentaries as many as 72 different types of ailments came under this banner of leprosy, but they were skin disease, and there was genuine dread of contagion. And the nearest that we've got to that is, of course, COVID. We've literally experienced what that's like in some form of actually something out there that you don't want to get. Do you remember during the early days of COVID, did anyone have this, when you're walking down the pavement, someone's coming over there, and they crossed over to go round you, and you're like, mate, I just... I'm just out on my 20 minutes of daily exercise where I can leave my home and they come down. I've got no human contact and they walk round you. And you're like, man, I felt like a leper. That's what it was like. And so, it, but it was more than an illness. It wasn't just an ailment that you had. It was a life sentence because someone who was suffering from leprosy was robbed of their name, their occupation, their family, their fellowship, and the worshiping community of God. They were completely removed from those things. You were an outcast in every way. Those who were suffering from leprosy were required to make their appearance as repellent as possible 
so that people would know by looking at them that they had it, so they wouldn't go near. And they had to shout, unclean, unclean, to keep everyone away. It was like that serious. So that's the background of leprosy. And the other interesting thing to note in here, if you're following along and you look in the, the language used, it's not something that required healing. It's something that required cleansing. You will not find healing in that section, but you will find cleansing four times, I counted it. So it's of a different order of what's going on here than just mum in bed with a, a fever, Jesus heals her. This is a different order of things. So that's the background of the encounter. Lepers were required to stand 50 paces from people, yelling unclean and looking repellent as possible. What did this leper do? He came and knelt before Jesus. He risked everything. He broke customs, he broke law, just to get to Jesus. He's heard the message of the kingdom, and he wants in. And he comes to Jesus. He says he kneels and implores Jesus. There is a note of desperation in his voice, but he also shows faith. You can heal me. He doesn't question Jesus' ability. He questions his willingness. He knows what Jesus can do. He knows what Jesus is capable. You can make me whole. And then Jesus does the most staggering thing. Rather than turning from the leper, which would have been normal, accepted, expected, run away, yelling, get away from me. I don't want to get what you've got. He turns to him and he touches him. Are you kidding me? Do you have a death wish? Lord, that's what he does. He just touched him. And unlike any ordinary rabbi teacher, he goes towards the leper. And what we find is rather than Jesus being made unclean by the leper, the leper is made clean by Jesus. So we have uncleanliness hitting perfect holiness and holiness triumphs. And because what Jesus has is passed on to the leper, and he is made clean. And in a moment, the leper is changed, transformed completely. He has gone from outcast, unclean, untouchable, unapproachable, with a life sentence that will eventually kill him, separated from God's presence and his people, to an insider, someone who can draw close, someone who's part of the community of God's people, who can worship with God's people. He's been brought wholeness and completely restored to his place. This person has experienced the salvation of God. He was in a situation that he could not get out of, he could not rescue himself from, he was totally stuck. And then a savior came. And his response of faith led to total transformation in his life. He found salvation. And Jesus then says to him at the end, he's commanded to go and follow the rite of cleansing. You find that in Leviticus 14. And to show himself to a priest just to kind of confirm what's happened and then he would be accepted back into the worshipping community and be able to go to the temple and go to synagogue and all these kind of things. And he was restored to that. And so there is a demonstration of the kingdom of God coming in deliverance, healing, and salvation. And the result, you see, is number one, amazement, it says, like, verse 33, the whole city knew what was going on because Jesus healed that guy in the synagogue. And then he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so the word got out and people came. So there is an incredible, like, wow, this is amazing. But also it leads to total misunderstanding. 
We said when we started the series that one of the themes that runs through Mark's gospel is this idea of secrecy and people being insiders and outsiders and people not getting it. And Jesus in here, he tells people to not tell others about what's happened. He said it to the, he said it to the leper who he just healed. In fact, the language there is so strong. It's almost like Jesus sent him packing. It says he sternly charged him not to tell anyone. The reason behind that we've seen is that Jesus wants to keep his identity of Messiah hidden because people will misunderstand it. People will think, ah, God's finally sent his Messiah, his chosen one. We're going to go and fight the Romans because they were the problem. They had occupied Israel. They were the invading hostile force that everyone hated and wanted them out. Messiah's come means pitch battle, we'll go and win. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to deal with a much bigger and more oppressive problem than even Rome, which is our sin and our guilt before God. And so he doesn't want it getting out in the wrong way. He doesn't want misunderstanding. He wants to guard his identity from those who can actually see. And thus far, we found the only person who can see is the enemy, who he actually is and why he's here. Humans are a bit slower and far behind. And so he's told this uh, leper, don't go and tell anyone. What does the leper do? Which you would imagine a fairly natural response. He goes and tell everyone, I'm healed. I'm free. I'm cleansed. Look at me. And so he's moved from total humility to total disobedience. Oh, the irony. And after an encounter with Jesus where your life has been transformed, you then become completely disobedient to his message and telling. And what we find there is a transformation, not just in the leper, but in their situations. What happens? The leper was outside, unclean, separated, had to go to desolate places. He has now been transformed, brought into the kingdom brought into what, what's the, the community of people of God celebrating who's now outside in desolate places. Jesus, the beautiful great exchange. This foreshadows what, what we know is going to happen in the cross. Jesus come and took what the leper had on himself and now he's the outsider. He's the one who's got to go and hide. He's the one who's got to go out, the, out of his way um, to be hidden because of the misunderstanding and the person who put him there is the one that he saved. Powerful message about salvation. But it's not just that. It's not just the, the leper who misunderstood. Even his own disciples. The inner crowd. We've got four guys. He thought, you're the first ones Jesus called. You must get this. Do they get it? Do they? Heck, they're dumb as anything and dull, just like us. It says, verse 36, they were on to a good thing. Jesus has kind of got his ministry going. It's pumping. Social media's blowing up. And it says, they went and searched for him. The language there is, they pursued and hunted Jesus. And God bless Simon, it's always Simon. He's trying to stop Jesus doing his mission. He's the one he's trying to tell him, and this foreshadows what we know is going to happen later. What does Peter famous for doing? Denying Jesus. He also says that he has the great revelation, chapter 8. We've seen that. Look forward to that. You are the Christ, you're the Messiah. Then he immediately starts telling Jesus off. And Jesus has to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. You haven't got, got the things of God on your mind. And Peter is all foreshadowed here. He's saying, everyone's looking for you. Everyone's seeking for you. And that language comes up again and again in the gospel. And every single time, it's negative. People seeking to arrest him. People seeking to kill him. People seeking to obstruct him. And even his own followers are right there. The language there is a language of control, not of submission. 
And Jesus, even despite his own followers getting in the way, Jesus knows his mission. He's saying, I've got to go and proclaim this message. I've got to move on from here. I've got to go elsewhere to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. So, last bit. Let's look at some application. So we've seen that the kingdom is deliverance, it's healing, it's salvation. Now let's look at the kingdom is, number one, proclaimed by preaching. It is proclaimed by preaching. We saw that last week, verses 14 and 15, Jesus came with a message and he preached the message. He spoke the message out. He proclaimed the message. And even it says here, Jesus, Mark, uh, verse 21, he went into Capernaum and he went to the Sabbath, to the synagogue, and he was teaching the people. Later on, verse 38, 39, he said, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there. That's why I came, to proclaim a message. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues. This is a verbal message that needs to be communicated. This is something we are to battle and fight for. The preaching of God's word is paramount for the people of God. That we not only sit under it, listen to it, but then we in turn communicate that with others. And it is a verbal message. It produces astonishment. We've seen that. People are like, whoa, what is that message? It also produces misunderstanding. And later we'll find it produces um, opposition as well. And Jesus', Jesus teaching was compared with those of the scribe. We saw that right that first bit. It says Jesus taught like one. He wasn't like the scribes. We're used to the scribes. The scribes are the ones who kept the scrolls, who kept the written records, and they were the ones who taught. And their, their authority for teaching was the tradition of the elders, of what others had said in the past. Well, so-and-so, Rabbi so-and-so said about this passage. They'd always refer back. Jesus comes and said, actually, my authority is me. I'm proclaiming about me and what I'm here to do. And when we proclaim Jesus, that's where we get our authority from. Not from anyone or anything else. We lift his name up, we proclaim his name because he is the one we're all about. And he is the one that we are to teach about. The message of the kingdom is a message all about Jesus. And the interesting thing in this passage, it talks about Jesus preaching and teaching a lot. It doesn't at any point say what he said doesn't have the three points of his sermon in Capernaum. And I think the point Mark is making, it's about him. If you preach about him and who he is and what he's done, that's the message. And Mark is laying this out for us. Actually, yeah, he preached and taught. What did he preach about? Well, he preached about himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, as the, the Messiah, the one to come, God's plan, God's kingdom coming. And we too are to proclaim that message. We are to preach about Jesus. We are to talk about Jesus. We talk about who he is, what he's done, what he is capable of done. The fact ultimately he dealt with the big problem, not of Rome, but of our sin and rebellion before God. And actually he dealt with that on the cross when he died in our place for our sins. And he's called, still calling men and women to put their faith and trust in him and repent of their sin and turn towards him. And we are to be part of his community, the church, where we grow in that, and then we are to proclaim and love and show that to those outside of us. And so this begs a question for us. What message are you proclaiming, and to whom? Because the reality is all our life is a message. Everything we say, everything we do, our actions back up our words. Our actions are important, but we are still to proclaim a message, but our actions can back that up, and they can either hinder your message or they can contradict your message sorry they can either hinder or help contradict or affirm what you're saying and so the question is looking at your life what message are you proclaiming about where your treasure is who your lord and savior is 
that you proclaim a message of God, but then you functionally, you're an atheist in everything you do because you don't acknowledge God in those things, in your finances, in your family, how you treat others relationally. Are you learning from your word and learning from the preaching in the church to be able to go and proclaim that out? Do you talk about church and Jesus to those you know and love? Who in the world are you talking to and what are you talking about? Because the kingdom of God comes by the proclamation of Jesus, who he is and what he's done primarily. Second thing, it is fueled by prayer. Mark 1 verse 35. Jesus had one heck of a day where he's preached in the synagogue, been teaching there, dealt with a demonic individual, gone home, prayed uh, for Peter's mother-in-law. She's been healed, and then he's had an evening of like, the whole town turns up with all the sick, all those with the, the issues. They're all there, and he's like, right, Jesus, deal with them. What does he do? If it was me, lying. <laughs> Bed, day off, break, anything. Jesus is, he rose very early in the morning while it was dark and he departed and went to a desolate place and there he prayed. After a whirlwind of activity, he seeks time with his Father in heaven. And that is the fuel that drives the kingdom of God, relationship with his Father. He's been filled with the Spirit. He is God the Son, but he has relationship with God the Father through prayer. And Jesus, as Jesus prays, the kingdom comes. It fuels what he does. He knows that he's on a mission and he stays on that mission because he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Well, how do you know what the Father's doing? Well, he was praying and talking to him. And prayer became what he did, what he did. And that's how he fueled and drove the kingdom. He said he went to a desolate place. Interesting wording, same wording used for John earlier in the chapter. It's a place of restoration and fellowship with God. That's where John was proclaiming his messages. So he goes out to find space and he prays. And if we follow through the passage, he's praying and the next thing you know, he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. They're coming together. And for us as a people, as a local church, we need to be ones. If we want to see the kingdom of God come, we need to pray. We need to be a church who prays. We need to pray individually. I need to be someone who prays. But in our context, when we meet with friends from church, prayer should be part of that. When we meet in our life groups, we build it into the structure. So we pray every time we meet. We have church at prayer. We have particular gatherings. We come together as the body to pray. We have prayer ministry. We did real life school last Sunday evening. And the, the session was on prayer ministry. How do you pray for someone else? Guidance, help, training. And actually, I'm going to pray for you particularly. How do I do that? What's that about? Simply put, there is no substitute for prayer and no excuse for prayerlessness as the people of God. Absolutely none. Because if we don't do that, what we're functionally saying is God doesn't matter. God doesn't exist. I don't need God's help. You might not say it quite as boldly as that, but that's effectively what your actions are saying. We are people who pray. And the last one, motivated by compassion. It's implicit through the passage, man with the unclean spirit, Simon's mother-in-law, who was sick, but we actually see it explicitly stated with the incident with the leper. It says, verse 41, it says, he was moved with pity. Other translations say compassion. 
Jesus' response, rather than being repelled by this man and all that he had wrong with him, rather than showing him contempt and callousness, because the guy was in the wrong on so many levels, in breaking the customs, the law, coming close with his, his mess, his infection, all those things, yet Jesus says he showed compassion to him. There's that deep word of an emotional response of tenderness and love to this individual's plight. And that motivated him to action. We just finished a sermon series that kind of ran across the summer where we spent a bunch of weeks looking at one verse where the Lord revealed his name to the people of Israel. And it said, he was a God who was merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Jesus is the image of that invisible God. He comes to earth and he, he shows that practically by, t in that case, touching the leper. And as we troll through the Gospels, if you're familiar with one, it comes up time and time again. Jesus' love and care for people. Jesus' love and care for the lost, the hurting, and the broken. Summed up, I guess, most famously, John chapter 3, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus loves people. And that motivates kind of his action, his mission. Everything he did was born out of that love for God to save those who were separated from God. Save us, save sinners, that we would be drawn into his community, drawn into his family, that the church would grow and multiply as a result. And this is something that as the people of God, that should, should mark us as a characteristic should mark us as a characteristic, as a church family. We might be known for many things. We've got great kids' work, great music. We've, you know, we can put on a good meeting. We have small groups. People look for these things in churches. Great, great. But if, if we're not motivated by a love and compassion for people, we failed on some level, on an important level, that actually that's what's underpinning who we are. We love people we care for people. We want people to know Jesus. We want people to be brought into restoration and wholeness with him. And this comes for us as followers of Jesus through reading our Bibles, through prayer, through sitting under preaching and letting that affect us through worship and being in times of worship and letting our hearts be stirred and sought as we look at God. This then shows us about the love of God, which then comes to us as we love other people. We've got um, our another intro, our into his presence night. Next Sunday, next Sunday, another opportunity to be in God's presence. Come and be transformed there. We're just going to spend the evening worshipping God, praying, seeing what he does. And through that, we encounter him, we're transformed, and then we can go out and show that love and compassion to others. Whatever it is you're doing, you know, get into God's word. If you've got your Mark journal and you're using this, Mark times when Jesus shows his love and compassion for others and pray, God, make me like that. Some of our year 10s and above are in here now. If you don't have a Mark Journal, come and talk to me. I'll get you one so you can follow along what we're doing, make your notes, and grow in your love for God. Okay, we're going to stop now. Do you want to stand? I'm going to do what I've just told you. We've sat under preaching. I'm now going to pray that we are filled with the Spirit, that we are motivated by compassion to see God's kingdom come. And then we'll see what he does here, but I'm also going to pray it goes out 
from this place. So maybe you want to close your eyes, open your hands, and just let what's been, what's come through from God's word shape you and convict you and poke you and transform you. You have to mix what you've heard with faith as a response. Say, God, I believe it. It's your word. I want that. I need that. I, I kind of I see that. So we have a response to do, but I'm just going to pray for us now. Lord God, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you that it has come. We thank you that you brought it. And it was fully revealed at the cross in your death, in our place for our sin, then your resurrection and your ascension. And even though we don't fully see it, one day it will come in its fullness. And we live in the now of your ever-increasing kingdom, God. And we pray, we cry out, God, would you increase it amongst us? We long to see more and more people set free from the influence of the enemy. We see more, want to see more and more people healed. We want to see more and more people saved and restored to fellowship with you as part of your worshiping community, Lord Jesus. And God, we pray for us, that we pray that you would make us a praying people, that it wouldn't be just something that oh, we can just drop from our Christian life, God, but we would recognize the importance and the power of it, that we would cry out to you because we know we can't do anything. We can't change the leper, only you can. And God, we pray, we can't heal the sick, only you can. God, would we do that, Lord? And we pray you would give us that deep compassion for people to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, to love, to reach out our hands to those who are different from us, who look different, who talk different, who've got different backgrounds, different conditions, different, they're just not like us. And maybe everything about them pushes us away. God, give us love and mercy towards them, Lord Jesus. Give us the love and mercy you've shown us in saving us that we might pass it on to others. God's people said...